Across the country, America has watched as labor unions have exercised their power in ways not seen in decades. As the labor movement organizes for better working conditions, there's a lot that the democracy and voting rights movement can learn in their successes. And there's no better teacher than former political director of the AFL-CIO, Michael Podhauser. And he is here today to share his insights and advice. This is Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. Welcome to Defending Democracy, Mike. Thank you. It's great to be here. You do great work. So, Mike, let me ask you a question. How how did you get into this work? How did you get into working for labor unions, caring about democracy? What's the backstory? Uh, so the backstory actually starts just, uh, when I was very young. I was in 1968, which was obviously one of the big years in American history where basically the country was exploding, um, you know, from beginning of the year to the end of the year. And um, although I was only 12, it completely pulled me in and uh, became pretty much set the course of what I was going to do. And, um, you know, obviously not in the same way I do now, but was already volunteering uh, for Bobby Kennedy and then, um, you know, participating in civil rights uh, marches that were going on and really never stopped that commitment. That's just what I wanted to do. And during your career, you had a very long and distinguished career in the labor movement. Um, and we talked to a lot of people on this podcast who are involved in democratic politics. Uh, and you've been involved in both uh, the labor movement and democratic politics. Uh, we're at a unique moment in history where organized labor is having real successes. You look at uh, the, the situation with the strikes uh, uh, in Hollywood, uh, the UAW right now seems to have the big three auto manufacturers uh, you know, on the run. It feels to me that you know, as we talk about the coalition around democracy, there is, the, there is an essential element that touches on the role of organized labor. And I thought maybe you would be the best person to ask how that how that intersection um, takes place and why it's so important. Right. So the the essence of a healthy democracy is the ability of working people, people at large, to act collectively. Right. Because we live in a country with gross inequality, not just in income and wealth, but in power. And the only democracy depends on all of our voices being weighed equally and not just at election time. And what you've seen in the United States grow up is one part of the country which is very anti-union and is the place where authoritarianism has always thrived, right, in the South and the Confederacy and Jim Crow. Right. When and the first thing would be dictators do when they take power is abolish labor unions, because that is the way people right, can act together. And it's only acting together that gives you power against threats to democracy. Right. Right now, 
essentially, if you look across all 50 states, the own, almost the only places where there are state legislatures with Democratic majorities are the states that are not right to work. And in almost every state that is right to work, there's a gerrymandered Republican trifecta that for the last dozen years has been completely shredding democracy in those places, right? The ability, the habit, the institution to act collectively to resist those um, attacks on democracy are absolutely necessary to keep the democracy going. And you see in those states where the labor movement still has significant power, it's become easier to vote, right? The things are moving in exactly the opposite direction. There's higher minimum. Everybody benefits when there's an institutional balance against corporations, against unfettered capitalism, and against sort of racial division, right? Not perfect, but you can't look around the world and find a place that has democracy without strong labor unions. So it's interesting because uh, there's been a lot in the news recently, and I know it's been a focus of your attention, uh, the absolute uh, fixation that the right wing has had on the courts. And listening to you, I'm, I, I recall that, you know, among the first decisions, among the first actions that the federal, the new majority, you know, new conservative majority took on was actually attacking labor unions. Right. Absolutely. So you draw, so you draw a connection between those. Oh, 100 percent. Right. And and not to don't count. Listen to me. Listen to Grover Norquist or other Republican um you know, leaders that, I mean, the, what they've said about, um, you know, voter suppression is obviously important as well, but they're, they're completely clear that without the, um, the power of the labor movement, just looking at Republican majorities everywhere, right? You look at one of the key moments in this recent history and deconstruction of democracy was the 2010 election, right? And in the 2010 election, what you had was a replacement of the Republican, the typical Republican nominee in places like Wisconsin for true believers, scorched earth politicians like Scott Walker. What was the first thing he did when he came in? He abolished public sector unions and then did right to work. And, oh, my God, Wisconsin went from being a very strong part of the blue wall, helped, you know, make sure that Democrats won the White House to like being the most, you know, the most battleground, ground zero right now. And you look at Minnesota, like literally next door, as you know, you, you were involved, I'm sure, in it, Mark Dayton in that same election won by a whisker. And you look at the develop, the evolution of Minnesota and Wisconsin over these dozen years, right? And you see a completely different outcome. In 2010, you know, life expectancy, average income, um, all of the key variables for well-being inc- were about the same in those two states. And now you see one is solidly democratic, one is on the edge in determining which way the country goes. 
That's how important it is to the Republicans to destroy labor unions. I was at a conference, uh, the American Constitution Society, which is a liberal-leaning um, organization, did a conference uh, on Citizens United shortly after the decision came out. And there was a labor lawyer, Mark Schneider. I don't know if you crossed paths with him, but he, uh, he, was, uh, he did uh, la traditional labor law for labor unions. And he was on the panel with me, and I remember him saying uh, that um, the First Amendment is the most overrated part of the Constitution. <laughs> and everyone gasped. Everyone was like, how could, you know, how could you possibly say that? You know, yeah, we don't like Citizens United, but how could you say that? And you know, this was before the most recent wave of anti-union um, decisions uh, by the conservative court. But people don't realize the courts have not been friendly to labor unions. And oftentimes, they, they have used the First Amendment and other provisions of the Constitution to rationalize preventing people from organizing and preventing from exercising collective power. And so this project of conservatives to take over the judiciary is quite important to labor and therefore to democracy. Uh, absolutely. No, the, I mean, the, the, all of the um, resources that went into the Federalist Society for decades, big part of the agenda was taking apart unions, right? That, I mean, one, and you know this, the one of the sort of the central purposes of the Federalist Society was to create a jurisprudence that would justify accomplishing all the things that business and the religious right knew they could not accomplish through democratic processes, right? That there was no way that they could pass a bill in Congress to not let people be in unions or to take away their abortion and so forth, right? And that's why the, the Federal Society Project is central to sort of deconstruction of democracy. And with Citizens United, the, there, what I find is that a lot of people don't really understand the way it affected state government, right? state elections. There's all this attention on, like, the, on Congress and so forth. But it was devastating at the state level, right? Because the, in those states, you basically open the door for billionaires like Art Pope and the Bradleys and the DeVosses and the Ulines to take over those state legislatures. And there have been many academic studies that showed that the result was about a four or five point shift towards Republicans after Citizens United in state legislatures. And that's huge. That's, that's what's going on. Speaking of what's going on, there are times where I feel like um, I am screaming at the top of my lungs about the threat to our country, the threat to the future, our children, uh, to democracy, uh, posed by not just Donald Trump, but the entire Republican Party, which has become captured by it. And I will confess uh, that one of the reasons why I wanted you on the podcast is you are one of the few people who, when I have these conversations, I feel like you get me, like you understand. <laughs> what is it that 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 me that the media or or even Democrats? What is it that people don't 
understand about these threats? Why, why is it that I sometimes feel like there is just this disconnect between the, the, the threat and the perceived threat? Wow. Okay. The, I think that, I mean, that's a, that's one of the most important questions there is, right? And I think the reason is because both institutionally and by personality, they're all really invested in a functioning two-party system. And as long as they're having that two-party system change is off the table, right? You Once you accept, like you and I do, that we only have one small de-democratic party left in the country, what do you do, right? They're like, and that is paralyzing, right? And so it, it uh, was it Upton Sinclair that it's amazing what people cannot understand when their salary depends on it, right? And I think that's been internalized, right? That many of the conversations I have with the people you're talking about, you sort of walk them up to that point, but you can't go the next step because to do so would mean that that you cannot treat them as legitimate at all, right? And in Western Europe after the Second World War, and the experience of watching fascists win elections, they actually, in most of their constitutions, put provisions that would bar parties who were not playing, not agreeing to the rules from getting on the ballot. And we didn't, right? And I think that one of the things that you have been such a leader in, but where I think people really do not understand um, the full extent of Shelby and that whole part of jurisprudence is that in the Voting Rights Act was America's version of those European constitutions. It was basically saying that, yes, there are situations in which people could be elected legally, but not act democratically. And that at that point, a Department of Justice um, bureaucrat could prevent that legally elected body from implementing things that would undo voting rights, right? And as Bitter Ginsburg said, when you throw, essentially, when you throw the umbrella out in the middle of a rainstorm, what are you, you're going to get wet. And we have always needed that strong a constraint on the impulses of, you know, those um, anti-democrats to keep it in check. And no surprise, you take those checks off and they're off to the races. Do you think this was inevitable? One of the one of the conversations that I oftentimes have is, you know, people want to know how we got here. And was was it was Trump the anomaly that caused something to happen that wouldn't have otherwise happened? Or was he just the manifestation of something that the Republican Party was was winding towards? You know, how, how do you how do you answer that? Oh, I think it's really clear cut. I mean, the the by the time Trump went down the escalator, right, most of the states that now have 
bright red legislatures and trifectas had already passed like, the agenda that the rest of us are all afraid of coming nationally, right? I mean, you know this, the from 2010 on, the num between then and Trump, the number of uh, voting restrictions, the stand your ground, the pre-viability abortion bans, like all those things are were happening from the ground up. And Trump just came in to sort of benefit from all that infrastructure that was already there. So you think it would have happened anyway? Do you put it back with Gingrich, the Tea Party, or or even further back than that? Well, I think the the that it is as catastrophic is in part is contingent. I don't think it's inevitable. I think the 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 that the Obama's election and the backlash against it happening in a midterm that led to redistricting sort of let them hit the jackpot with also Citizens United. I mean, it it did not have to be as it, what, what it is now, but um, all of those things coming together were the, the combination that brought us here, right? I'm not saying that we'd be living in a happy place with rainbows and unicorns, but we would not be on the edge like this, right? Because as you know, what they, what's been happening is that they win this election, that election, and then they sort of close the door to future competition and do what they want. Right. And so as I, like I was saying earlier in the conversation about Minnesota and Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin didn't have to be that, right? Without Citizens United and the Bradleys and the Ulins and all putting so much money in and getting a Scott Walker, and you you basically don't have to go there, right? And, it didn't, not, and Minnesota didn't have to be Minnesota. Exactly, right. That, that, that the, um, you know, for generations in places like Wisconsin, right, you toggled between like a Tommy Thompson and a moderate Democrat, right? And everybody kind of was okay with that. And then because that was the backlash election in 2010, instead of getting a Tommy Thompson, you get a Scott Walker who just changes all the rules. And then you live with the consequences. So one of the things that I think you are genius at, and if anyone does not subscribe to what Mike uh, writes on Substack, you you need to the we'll put a link in the description in the in the notes. Um, but one of the things that I think you are absolutely genius at articulating is how much these rules matter. You know, you've said several times that the rules of voting, whether it's the voting rules or the, the redistricting rules, that these have real consequences. And, you know, it is frustrating that sometimes we read these stories of people who say, oh, I don't think it matters. I don't think any of those rules matter. I, you know, I think that it's overstated. And you wrote something, and I quoted this, I quoted you in a piece I wrote shortly after, uh, after, uh, uh, after, after you wrote it in May, um, that just to me, like captures the thing that I f find so beguiling about it. You said, quote, before elections, we can discuss endlessly how different election changes would advantage one party or another. But it's taboo to talk about those rules changes after the election 
unless it's to disprove that those changes affected the outcome at all. Boy, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah. boy, did you get it right? Yeah. Yeah, no, but and that gets back to your earlier question about why people don't, because like with the with the midterms, right? It's obvious that the um, Supreme Court handed the Republicans four seats, and that the other um, kinds of rule changes really put them over the top. But again. Right, the sort of system justifying press had to rush in to assure people that in fact our Congress was legitimate, right? Because and that's why it happens, right? Because what are they going to say after the election? No, the Republicans really didn't win because they just benefited from this collusion among all the different ways they changed the rules. Right? That's too radical for the media. That's why you just get every outlet after the election rushing in to say, oh, some people are going to tell you it was about the rules, but really this was legitimate and it would have happened anyway. Now, as I recall, you did some something of a, of a rough justice analysis of the t- midterm elections and looked at kind of states with more permissive voting rules and less permissive voting rules. And and you've made this point that it's not just what the impact is in one election, but what the impact is over over time, right? Right. And so talk about that, because again, I think it's really important for people to hear. Sure. And this is really important because there's this group of academics, many of whom um, don't disclose, but are actually paid to testify to the you know, that these rule changes don't matter, right? But one of the things they never do is look at the impact over time. And the reason that that's so, in, why in fact we see sort of going from my, that pivot point in 2008, that, that turnout among African-Americans in the states that passed these laws is way down more than in the states that didn't, right? And the reason it happens, you sort of think about it for more than a minute, is that if you were a regular voter before these laws went into effect, right, you are almost certainly going to figure out a way to vote in the next election. Where it affects is the people who've never voted, Right, who you've just made it harder for. And they're a very small percentage of the potential vote in that first election. But then you go three, four, five cycles later, and all those folks who probably would have become voters because, uh, but didn't because it's so much harder, like are missing from the electorate. Right. And And so sort of the math of it is that that group that was always going to vote and wasn't going to let, oh, they move the polling place or there are too fewer to keep them from voting, right? They're a smaller and smaller percentage of the potential vote. And the ones who've been discouraged from ever becoming voters are a bigger thing. And that's the dynamic that keeps showing that over time, those laws are working at reducing Black and Latino turnout. We've talked a lot about the uh, the past and the problems and uh, you know and the the challenges facing democracy. I want to talk a little bit about 
the future about 2024 and, and beyond. Um, as you see, as we record this, we're we're a little bit more than a year out from the election, so there's a long, long time to go. But what what are the things that listeners should be paying attention to? So how should they think about uh, what to be what to be concerned about for 2024 and what what they can do about it? Sure, I think it's really really important. The first thing is to not pay attention to all of the noise about polling. Um, <laughs> that's that's uh, ironic coming from you since you are kind of a guru of interpreting poll- polling. Yeah, but I, th- I think that that's why hopefully I have some credibility because it's the, they're not, they're not the right tool for trying to understand what's going to happen over a year from now or even what's happening right now, right? It's just sort of a clickbait thing that because people are so worried about what's going to happen that they want to be reassured. And so like that's the, with that's what the demand that's being met by all these people who are doing poll after poll after poll, which says pretty much the same thing, right? The, what, one of the things I wrote was basically a cure for mad poll disease, right? Really just like take a deep breath. Remember that, even on election day, right, 538, the others, right, got the key states, enough key states wrong to have not, to, a day before, right, after millions of people had voted, right? The, there are a lot of things that you can trust polling for, but hitting like a bullseye 15 months away, <laughs> Right, where is just nuts, right? And the thing to remember is that we don't have a national vote for president, and all of these polls are about sort of national trophies. So even if it meant something, you don't know what it means there. And in 2016 and in 2020 and in the midterms in 2022, they were the whole thing was decided by just a few thousands of votes in the presidency in five states, right? And like nothing can do that. And that's why I think that instead of looking at a poll and saying, what's the margin of error? We just know ahead of time that in those five states that'll determine our future, Biden versus Trump or whoever is within the margin of our effort, right? That it is so close that if we do enough, Trump loses. If we don't, he wins. And that, not like who does a better poll, is what we should be paying attention to, right? Because when we pay attention to a poll for that, we're basically saying we can't have any effect on the outcome, right? And yeah, and so I, and as you know, because you've known me for a long time, I say that about good polls too. Right, I polls for that are quote good for us. Right in the run up to twenty twenty, I was almost the only one saying it was going to be way closer than it actually than all the polling had it. Right, because these five states are just that close, and in a place like Wisconsin, where it's been like a civil war since Walker won. The idea that it's ever going to move from much beyond 50-50 is like looking at numbers and not looking out the window. 
You know, I wonder, you know, I, this, this may not be correct, um, but uh, I'm sort of inspired by your Minnesota-Wisconsin um, analogy. And it does seem, as someone who was, you know, worked for Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, when Republicans controlled Wisconsin and Michigan, um, it does feel like Michigan's gotten better for Democrats. And it is probably, if I hear you, not coincidental that the sort of return of a strong labor movement and the and the increase in uh, partisan fairness in the maps and and uh, election rules that that's that that all sort of goes together. Absolutely, and take it even more specific and further. Right? I mean, you look at the successful gerrymander they had in Michigan and Wisconsin. Right. And another place where the mainstream media is basically saying sort of whatever. Right. This is not really affecting anything. And with the labor movement, other organizing in Michigan, they got a commission. And the immediate result of the commission, even in a, quote, red wave midterm, was to flip both chambers of the Michigan legislature from being Republican to being Democratic and turning it into a trifecta, right? That's what would happen in Wisconsin if you had fair districts, even now, right? Yeah, I want but, everyone, hold on, I just want to pause there because I yeah. want you to, I want everyone to hear you say this. You're saying, if I could snap my, my fingers and say, Wisconsin now has fair maps, you know, just like drawn by a bipartisan commission or a nonpartisan commission, just fair maps, objectively fair maps. You're saying what? I'm saying that probably in 2024, they go from being two to one Republican to somewhere plus or minus 50. I mean, it'd be really pretty close, reflecting how close the presidential race is going to be there. Yeah. And that is, with that goes all of the policy choices that that Wisconsin is now stuck with. Right. So um, what gives you hope? <laughs> you know, this a lot of this sounds very depressing. Um, we didn't even talk about North Carolina, which, right. you know, is in the middle of gerrymandering itself even worse. Um, but what gives you hope? Well, what gives me hope is that it's still very much the case that there are far more people in America who reject Trump and MAGA than don't, right? And the problem is they have their act together better than we do, even if it doesn't feel like it. They have um, more money, right? Yeah, they have more money, but they also, um, the because they live into the Fox unreality bubble, right, they're honest, the voters there's honest perception of the threat posed by Democrats is always at 11. And so they're always maximum turnout, right? And they're not searching, they're not searching in their hearts to find a moderate, quote unquote, moderate Democrat. Right. right? Like that, right. like, like the media and too many Democrats, like they're always searching for that magical moderate Republican. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's ridiculous, right? The, because, and this is the part, so one of the things that I do and that I recommend people who really want to understand what's happening in this country is, you know, in sort of medically administered doses, watch Fox or the <laughs> war room, 
or that really? sort of thing. Yeah, because there's a way in which actually experiencing this world in which people believe a, a coherent narrative that we only sort of hear excerpts of that seem to make no sense makes you realize that what's going on is that the people who are consuming that really believe the whole story, right? And, you know, there's a lot said about like the spread of disinformation and how vulnerable we are. And there clearly that's an important thing. But when you think about all the disinformation we send out about how Biden won the election, like hasn't convinced any of them, right? Because they know the in their bones truth that Trump won, right? That's why they showed up on January 6th, because they actually thought for real that their country was being stolen. And until you really understand that while there are some who are cynical and manipulating all of this for their benefit, that there are tens of millions of people who are living in a world where that is true, right? Then this all makes a lot more sense, right? And and you realize that that's the case. Now, the, to go back to what you were saying about the mainstream media, it is only when the mainstream media gets scared enough to report honestly that the rest of America actually mobilizes, right? And you may remember in, twi- in for the first three and a quarter years of the Trump administration, most of the media was trying to sort of do some kind of balance. But somewhere around April of 2020, they realized just what a threat Trump was going to be. And they mostly reported straight from them, right? And without it, he'd probably still be in the White House, right? Because at that point, everybody's worked up. And if you think about the reaction to Dobbs, right, before it, many people like savvy commentators were saying, well, this may not help Democrats because it'll mobilize Republicans too. And now, you know, it'll be a standoff and all that. Well, no, right? At this point, as I said, all those Republicans are already worked up to 11 and you cannot get them more worked up. There are none of them left to come out. But there are certainly a lot of people at six or seven on our side who are now at 10 and winning elections. Well, that is um, a lot uh, to think about. Some some good action items for us, some a lot to be worried about. And the action item of watching Fox News is not one to <laughs> to, but I'll but I'll give it a road a, a, a roll. Um, Michael Potthorts, thank you for being here. Uh, former political director of the AFL-CIO, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a good friend. And if you are not subscribed to his Substack and hanging on his every word, you are <laughs> not. You are not understanding either. American politics, democracy, or the Democratic Party. So I recommend all of those. And like I said, we'll put uh, links in the in the show notes. Thank you for being oh, here. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review. To find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights and election news, visit democracydocket.com and make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. We'll see you next time. 
Today's episode was produced by Ali Rothenberg, Gabby Corporal, and Paige Moskowitz. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.